Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Windham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Windham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's considered the last schooner yacht of its type from the Gilded Age of 1885. We visit Mystic Seaport Museum and talk to them about one of their latest renovation projects, Coronet. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. When you live this close to the ocean, it's difficult not to cover stories about it and the vessels that sail on it. Mystic Seaport Museum in the southeast of the state has been around for a long time, and among their many projects and exhibitions, they are still a working shipyard dealing with wooden boats. In early December 2022, the museum took receipt of their latest renovation project in the form of the 1885 schooner yacht Coronet. And just days later, Connecticut East this week visited Coronet to find out more about the ship's history and its future. We're talking to Chris Gasserick, Senior Vice President of Operations and Watercraft, or as you like to pronounce it, Chris? Vice President of Ships and Boats and Docks and Floaty Things here at Mystic Seaport Museum. We are in the bowels of Coronet, the latest vessel to come here to Mystic Seaport Museum. Tell us a little bit about Coronet. So Coronet was built in 1885 in Brooklyn, New York, as a racing yacht, sort of a Victorian-era racing yacht, something that just doesn't exist anymore. Most famous race was 1887, where it raced for a $10,000 bet against the uh, schooner Dauntless across the Atlantic to Great Britain, and it won, and has continued through a few owners after that. Uh, Most of its time was as part of a religious organization around the world. But some of the most interesting travels were scientific voyage through the Pacific, stopped in Hawaii, so actually King Kamehameha has actually been on board, went to Japan, had the Emperor of Japan aboard, and then traveled the world as part of a religious organization for many years before ending up in Newport in the late 90s, where it was acquired for restoration by the International Yacht Restoration School and Elizabeth Meyer. Again, changed hands a few times through its restoration till we get to a point where it's been now acquired by the Pincus Brothers out of New York and brought it here to finish it and get it sailing. Just to give the listeners an idea... What is a schooner? Can you just like very simply explain? Because Coronet is is a schooner and also it's what's been termed as probably the the last schooner from the Gilded Age. Can you also give us an idea of what that means as well? Because it all sounds rather beautiful. So a schooner is one of our favorite types of vessels here at Mystic Seaport Museum. True definition of a schooner is a two-masted sailing vessel with the front mast lower than the rear mast. What it is, is it's a very efficient rig for a vessel to really develop for fishing. You can change the sail combination very easily for different kinds of weather and different points of sail. 
scale. So very versatile, and they were very plentiful along the U.S. coast because of that versatility. And there still are several that we preserve here. There's still several that even race around the East Coast. We have a schooner at the seaport that does sail training for high school students. And we recently competed in the Great Chesapeake Bay Schooner Race with about 20 other schooners. So still plenty of them around. And we love to preserve the historic ones, including Coronet, as you said, a Gilded Age schooner. Sort of an era of wealthy business folks kind of took a similar design of a Gloucester fishing schooner and turned it into more of a yacht and made it uh, kind of took the traditions of the fishing schooners, which would race each other back out to the fishing grounds and back to market. And they turned them more into yachts and took them uh, racing not for fish, but for, as I said, the $10,000 bet across the Atlantic or further afield. Now, as we say, Coronet is here. She's only just got to the Mystic Seaport Museum and will undergo what could be anything up to about a three-year restoration. Talk us through a little bit about that. I mean, I know there's a lot to it and there's a lot of details probably still to be discussed with the owners of Coronet, but it's clearly a big job. It is a big job. We have a lot of the original interior, but we have to work with the owners to, you know, A, preserve the vessel. It is a National Historic Landmark, and that's kind of how we fit in with the museum and, and working on it. But also decide how to make it functional and practical. So how do we do the mass? How do we do the rig? How do we do the sails? How do we put propulsion in? How do we make comforts for guests who may not, well, there was a gold gilded age vessel. There wasn't a lot of the creature comforts that we might like today. So making sure there's nice flushing toilets for instance. So all of those systems have to go in. Maybe hear the echo of us standing inside this bare hull and figuring out all the things required to make a sort of a city floating at sea with all the electrical and lighting and plumbing and septic systems is, uh, will be a bit of a challenge, as well as finishing the topsides and the sail handling gear and masts and all the things. I mean, we have a ship's wheel, but we don't have anything to mount it to yet. A lot of details to finish. Yeah, I was going to say, again, just for the sake of the listeners, it's, without sounding rude, just effectively a floating hull at the moment. But, I mean, possibly it could be restored with rigging and and the whole thing again as part of this ongoing conversation with the owners. The other thing I wanted to put to you, Chris, because obviously, you know, you and the team do lots of this type of restoration work on many different types of vessels. When it comes to something like this, I mean, in the modern world that we live in, and you sort of alluded to this a little bit about, you know, the modern creature comforts, do you have to be a little bit careful, though, as to how far you go with that type of stuff, especially, as you said, this is a historic vessel? Yeah, and that's where I think from our, our conversations with the, uh, the, the owners of the vessel, and we've worked on other vessels of theirs, they have the right spirit. They don't want to turn this into a mega yacht. They don't want to turn it into a super yacht. They want to have the, the feel both below decks and above decks that you are sailing on the Coronet of 1885. The other thing, of course, is as we stand here looking at all the beautiful woodwork inside here and everything that keeps Coronet together, I asked you this question before we started doing the interview. There's very little of the original woodwork of Coronet left, though, is there? Right. There's a few frames and a few uh, bits of some of the supporting knees inside, but a lot of it is is new wood. And there's not many wooden structures in the world from uh, 1885 that are consisting of their original fabric. We have the whaling ship Charles W. Morgan here, the oldest commercial vessel afloat from 1841, which... You know, it probably has half or more of its original wood, but that is very rare. In the uh, ship preservation world, we like to think of when we do a restoration, as long as there's never zero ship, and as long as there's never two, where we're taking a piece out, 
and making a new piece and putting it back in, that then it's, it's really the same ship and it's the same soul. It's, uh, it's always been one object in one place. Now, as you said, we're inside Coronet. I mean, you know, to me, the untrained eye, it all looks, you know, in reasonably good order. I mean, how much of, like, the hull will be worked on, or is it going to be other aspects? And what type of wood actually is, is used? Is it going to be authentic to the original, or do you have to use something else because of what's available? Some of that is what's available. I always say the wood that we use for uh, historic ship restoration is, is not what you get at uh, Lowe's or Home Depot. We go out into the forest, find the trees, bring them here, mill them here in our own sawmills. So we're looking for really special materials that are, are getting rather hard to find. In some cases today are impossible to find. So we have to do some glued laminates, which let us make up from smaller trees what would originally have been made out of a big tree, but they just don't exist today. So we have to be flexible, but we try and keep the materials as original as possible, and we even use a lot of local materials. We use white oak from Connecticut, white pine from Rhode Island and Connecticut, as well as some materials from further in the United States. I mean, Mystic Seaport Museum, of course, is known for ship restorations. I mean, you are one of the best in the country. I'm guessing it's, you know, as the, as the years go by, it's a combination of, you know, these incredible sort of like artists and craftspeople that you have here, but also utilising sort of like, as you say, some of the modern technologies, the laminating, which, of course, clearly wouldn't have existed way back then. Right. So we have a great staff of shipwrights, and they're here to maintain our fleet of historic vessels. And then, you know, in order to uh, let us keep that big staff full-time, we do work on some outside projects that are of historic relevance, like Coronet. And those guys are uh, they're artisans. You know, there's no right angles on a ship. Everything's a curve. Every surface you see on any of the boats that we work on is finished by hand. We do use a lot of saws and chainsaws and electric saws and things to get to that point but every bit that that is seen as a finished product there's no tool that can finish the curves in their final state so it's all done by hand sometimes i joke when people ask are you building these ships the same way they would have originally been built and i say well we we try to get as close as we can but uh you know they have child labor laws today and we're not allowed to have workers work seven days a week so we uh, compensate for that by using power tools and, and things you yourself have got an immense maritime history, and as we said, so many of the artisans and the craftspeople that work here also do as well. What's it like? Give us a sense of, you know, do you still get excited when something like this comes in? Because they're all very different. I love boats. I've worked on everything from container ships to historic schooners, and there's something about the historic vessels that have a little more soul to them. I get excited about everyone that comes in. They're just, it's a new challenge. A new set of problems, a new set of, uh, a new challenge to overcome. And working with the great staff and great, the owners of this vessel are great partners. And it just makes it fun to come to work every day. The shipyard that is actually in here at the Mystic Seaport Museum, the, the Henry Dupont uh, shipyard, celebrating its 50th anniversary, which of course is amazing. You know, things like this just help to keep obviously people in work, but obviously the craft going as well, which is important because uh, we hope to have these things around for a very long time. But it's obviously a lot of kudos for the museum and for the people that work here. Yeah, we've, uh, you know, the shipyard at the museum is on the location of a shipyard that has been here for a couple hundred years. And keeping that legacy alive and the shipbuilding side of Mystic, which is really what brought Mystic into prominence, is a wonderful tradition to keep going. What keeps you excited about things? You said, you know, you love all things, you know, boats. I mean, again, you're a very accomplished sailor yourself, twice circumnavigated the globe, which is incredible. 
you know, where's all this excitement and passion come from? Well, I mean, I like to I like to kind of joke. My own background is I grew up in Michigan, and as my parents tell me, I we were on the Detroit River and saw a ship go by, and I pointed at it and I said I wanted to be on a boat, and they thought that was wonderful because a few weeks earlier, apparently, I had pointed at a garbage truck, and that would have been fun too, but they figured the uh, the ship was was good, but they would still try and get me to point at a doctor or a lawyer, and that never happened. So. Here I am playing with ships every day and with a great crew that does amazing things and preserving history together, which is a great combination. As we said, twice circumnavigated the globe. What's that like? Because that's a big task. And did you do it with people or was it, you know, or was it just you? Oh, no, it was, uh, it was with great crews on uh, actually cargo ships. So once around each way, just to make sure the water looked the same, go in both directions. But, you know, it is a great way to see the world is traveling by sea. Great career and opens up great opportunities to, to end up at a great place like Mystic Seaport Museum. Now, as work starts to begin on Coronet, as you say, once these discussions continue with the owners as to precisely what you're going to be doing, and obviously the plan gets moving, I believe that visitors will be able to see the work as it progresses. How exciting is that, you know, as I say, for the, for the craftsmen and, and for people like you as well? Because you don't want it to be hidden behind, so like big tarpaulins. And, I mean, it's nice for people to see it actually happening, isn't it? That's one of the best parts about our shipyard here is shipbuilding and ship repair are pretty big businesses in, in our country and even in our state. But if you want to go see an electric boat and say, hey, I'd love to see how you, how you repair a submarine, you're not going to get a friendly reception at the gate. And even most commercial shipyards are not going to let you come in and see. But, but we really let visitors come in and see the whole operation. And it's wooden ships, which may be different than a, a ferry you might go on. But they're really built the same, the same structure, and uh, require the same amount of work to, to keep them floating, keep them operational, and keep them safe. So we really give our visitors a glimpse into a, a big part of our American industry that uh, you just don't get to see. And do you guys love talking about it as well? I mean, you're enjoying and you can hear the passion in your voice as we do this interview now. I mean, are all of you, do you all like to geek out and so I can speak to people about what it is you're doing? Because, I mean, it is unusual stuff. I mean, there's very few people who know exactly what it is that you're doing. So do you enjoy that sort of like educational process as well? Oh, we do. We love giving behind-the-scenes tours. We love answering visitor questions. Whether it's somebody who doesn't know anything about boats and asks a basic question, our, our staff will stop what they're doing, explain what they're doing, might even hand you a tool and see if you want to give it a try. We're, we're all about sharing the experience of, of taking care of these ships. So let's just talk a little bit about when Coronet was actually in Rhode Island. She was there for like a, almost 30 years. Students were working on her. So that's interesting as well, because they must have had fun, obviously, you know, because as I say, she still looks in good shape, so they obviously did a fairly good job. Yeah, part of that was uh, the International Yacht Restoration School, where the vessel was for the last uh, few decades, and as you can see, where the hull around us, you know, our feet aren't wet. They did a great job. It floated, and we're able to, uh, you know, kind of pass it on to the next spot to get her finished. I understand as well that uh, once work begins on this, there will be some people from that organization, the, what is it, the IYRS as well. Talk to us a little bit about that, because that's nice to be able to, like, to bring them back in, because they're alumni, aren't they, from that organization? Yeah, we, we get a lot of our staff from that, that organization, that school. And it is, you know, a lot of visitors will ask, you know, how, how do we become a shipwright? And uh, that's one of the ways is you start to learn how to use tools, how to work on build a boat, which is, is different from building a house. You know, there's no right angles on a boat. 
So a lot of our staff are as alumni of that school, so it's great to get them. And we also have interns from there that come and work with us every summer. So we do have a good partnership there, and it's kind of an exciting project for uh, to stay partners with. How important is it? I mean, it sounds like an obvious question, but how important is it to keep organizations like Mystic Seaport, the shipyards, working? It's an artisan skill that you know applies both to vessels, to other things on land, and it's hard to replicate. If that uh, skill gets lost, it doesn't come back. So, you know, it's great. We've got staff members that we bring in both from, like, International Yacht Restoration School, but also we'll bring in folks sort of as, as an apprentice, and they'll learn. We've got some great staff members that have come into the industry, both as second careers, first careers, gone to school for it, and have found a place where they can have found a passion that is employment, a great job, and maintaining great bits of uh, American heritage. What's it like as well being this, this awesome organization <laughs> that really has sort of, I would say, probably unmatched capability on the eastern seaboard? Yeah, it's, it's great. We get to talk to pretty much everyone who has a big wooden vessel, do maintenance on a lot of them, and, and we have our own fleet that we take care of. So we're sort of the spot if you've got a big wooden ship. And what's really fun on that is when we bring a new vessel in or take one out that we've finished, the town embraces it. You know, we, we brought Coronet in here last week through the drawbridge. The docks were full of people that come see it come through. When the Mayflower comes in or goes out, the docks are full. Kalmar Nickel comes in, the docks are full. I think there's a big connection uh, to the town as well that, you know, really sees what we're doing, and that's a big part of the, of the town and the area. The launch was kind of interesting. So when it first came to us, it was with Alex and Miles Pincus, who have taken over the vessel, and we work on a couple of their other uh, historic schooners for them. And it came up and kind of said, oh, what about Coronet? And I said, okay, we could, we could look at that. The problem is it's, it's inside a building in Newport, and the bottom's not quite finished. But we can do that. We love a challenge. So figuring out how to get a uh, you know 120-ton wooden object out of a building and into Newport Harbor where there's a marina in the way and uh, no easy access into the site was just the kind of challenge we love. So we were able to find one of the biggest cranes on the East Coast that could reach with a really long boom. We had to get a bunch of rigging materials, including shackles that weighed 500 pounds each, giant cables, brought a bunch of my wooden shipwrights up, and we assembled this whole erector set of a system to lift this hull up and then set it in the water. And I will say there were, there were a few people who you might not have thought it was going to work. So last Friday, giving the signal to go ahead and start lifting it was a scary moment. And when it just gently lifted off with all of our staff, the Pincus brothers, the Iris folks, uh, lots of people there to watch it, I will say my, uh, my heart lifted a bit that it uh, lifted up nice and gently, swung and floated in the water like it was just meant to be. And then we towed it from Newport to Mystic in December, which is not a lot of other boats out there that time of year, and just slid through the water, slid up the Mystic River, and really ready to start the next phase. You're lucky with the weather as well, because we seem to be having reasonably good weather, because, of course, that's always going to be an issue as well, especially if you're towing something, because, I mean, that can become a rather dangerous situation, even with something that, you know, she's not that small. I mean, she's, what, 131 foot, and... As you say, weighs a fair amount, but um, the sea can have, it, can have its way when it feels like it. When this is all completed, again, I know that there's still conversations yet to be had with the owners. 
What's the future for Coronet that you know of at this moment in time? What's, what's going to happen? What's she going to be doing? Well, my conversation and, and planning with the owners is, and from the start, they said that they wanted to uh, recreate that 1887 transatlantic race. So I guess the only thing I got to do is find another schooner to race. Well, I doubt you'll have a problem because, like you said, you seem to have plenty of them uh, dotted around here. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and we look forward to following the restoration of Coronet. And in the meantime, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Excellent. It's been a pleasure. To find out more about what's going on at the museum and things to do and see, visit their website at mysticseaport.org. And don't forget, you can also see the work being undertaken on Coronet as well at their shipyard. Hey, son, how are you feeling? Uh, I'm fine, Pops. What's on your mind? I just, I can't explain it. When your kid can't find the language, help them find the lyrics. Listen to the Sound It Out album and get tips and tools to start a conversation at sounditouttogether.org. Brought to you by Ad Council and Pivotal Ventures. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Healthcare union members from AFT Connecticut joined legislative leaders at the Capitol recently to ask lawmakers to adopt proposals to address the state's ongoing patient care crisis. Sherry Dayton is a registered nurse and vice president for healthcare of AFT Connecticut and works at Backers Hospital in Norwich, which is part of the Hartford healthcare system. She says when she started nursing, it was one nurse to four patients. Now that's double to eight patients and means both she and her patients are being put at risk. Every interaction I have with a patient can take at least 10 to 15 minutes, whether that's helping them to a commode, doing a dressing change, giving them medications, taking their vitals. If I have eight patients, am I going to see them every hour? There's just no way. And every time I'm not seeing them every hour, their risk of having a poor outcome goes up. I've heard nurses referred to as the canary in the coal mines, and that is true. State Senator Saud Anwar is a physician in the state as well as co-chair of the Legislature's Joint Committee on Public Health and painted a bleak picture of the healthcare industry. Before the pandemic, we were stretched in our healthcare system. But after the pandemic, it is a crisis, completely broken. And then here's what's going on. We know the healthcare workers and the nurses are burnt out. And we know that one out of five healthcare workers have already left healthcare. And the ones who are left behind, one out of those three who are left behind are thinking about leaving. This is a crisis, but this is rapidly moving towards a disaster. According to a recent AFT report, since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic three years ago, nearly one in five healthcare workers have quit the industry. And of those that are left, one in three say they are considering quitting. 
The Connecticut Port Authority is preparing to ask the state and possibly project partners Eversource and Orsted for more money to complete their state pier project in New London but are not saying how much they're looking for. The controversial project to create a hub for the offshore wind industry in Connecticut has escalated in price from $93 million to around $255 million, with state taxpayers footing the bill. State Senator Kathy Austin, who sits on the Transportation Committee, says she's disappointed at the news and why she's introducing two bills in the new legislative session to deal with the Port Authority and quasi-publics like it. One is the elimination of success fees from ever happening with any quasi-public and with any state agency. And the other one is that no management of a contract administrator, contract manager can bid on the respective projects that they're managing. Both of them need to happen in order to ensure that problems that have happened at the Port Authority already uh, don't continue. Austin is one of two local legislators preparing the bills and says the Port Authority and its chairman, David Kouros, have been given more than enough chances. You know, enough's enough. And I would say that both myself and Representative Connolly voted against the reappointment of Mr. Corus because we think it's time to move on. It's time to establish a whole new administration down there relative to the board. And let's see what we can do with that. The Port Authority did receive some welcome news recently when the Attorney General, William Tong, delivered a formal opinion to the State Contracting Standards Board after they questioned the validity of the Port Authority's Harbour Development Agreement with Gateway Eversource and Orsted for State Pier, saying they felt it fell outside a legal timeline for the creation of a public-private partnership in the state. Tong concluded the authority and other quasi-publics in the state had from 2015 to June 2021 to make such agreements and the Port Authority partnership was signed in 2020 was sound and therefore legal. The town of Sonington has received over $700,000 from the federal government to help replace and repair two of their wastewater pumping stations. The River Road Pump Station, located on the banks of the Porkatuck River, currently handles wastewater for around 2,300 homes, but needs an extra pump to add capacity and help when there are wastewater surges in the sewer system. Senator Richard Blumenthal says infrastructure like the pumping stations are critical on so many levels. These pumps are... The difference between wastewater going into the Pawkatuck and then into the Sound or being treated beforehand. And we need to treat wastewater before it pollutes the Pawkatuck and Long Island Sound. That's why this $720,000 is an enormously important investment. Danielle Cheeseborough is the first selectman of Stonington and said getting this matching funding from the federal government is the only way small towns can afford projects like this. Some of these projects have been years we've been waiting for, some are newer, and some, like this one, also help us then address other issues as we were talking about with climate resiliency. All of these stations are obviously in flood zones where they're located, and so by having this partnership to have federal dollars will also help us to make this a more resilient pump station and help us to direct those dollars where they're really needed with other pump stations because they all need work. The total cost of the sewer upgrade project is around $1.6 million with the town of Stonington matching the funding received from the federal government. And a new biology research study from Eastern Connecticut State University has discovered the stingers of scorpions contain novel bacteria that could be useful in the development of future new antibiotic medicines. 
Professor Barbara Murdoch from Easton is the senior author of the research and says they chose scorpions because they can live and survive in extreme conditions. Humans have been on the earth for, let's say, 0.2 million years. Scorpions have been on the planet for more than 400 million years. So their longevity combined with their success, and of course they have a little bit of an intrigue as most people don't come across scorpions in their everyday life, depending upon where you live, sort of added some interesting areas for the research. Murdoch says their findings are significant as well as it could help to alleviate the global issue of antibiotic resistance. Most of the antibiotics that we use today are actually derived from bacteria. So if you can find new lineages, new types of bacteria, they could be a treasure trove for new antibiotics. And then those antibiotics could be helpful to treat human bacterial infections. The research found that scorpions contain vast types of bacteria in their venom-producing organ, which was previously thought to be a sterile environment. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 